Well, good morning, everyone, those who are here in the room and those of you who are joining us online. You know, Google Analytics is quite a fascinating thing. I'm amazed at how much information you can find out about your audience. So we know that you are joining us from places as far away as Germany and Poland and the southern United States and spread throughout Canada and, and wherever you find yourself this morning, know that you are knit into a family of God that that has a way of, of overcoming all of the borders and nationalities and the divisions that keep the world apart. You are part of something here that is big and that is beautiful. Uh, that has always been the dream for the church. And nobody harbored that dream quite so passionately as the Apostle Paul. He loved planting churches, and he especially loved planting churches in locations, metropolitan locations, that brought together nations across borders. The ancient city of Colossae was that kind of a place. Now, Colossae doesn't exist anymore, so we can forgive ourselves for not really knowing where it is or much about it. But in the ancient world, it was located in Asia Minor, in a province that used to be called Phrygia, which now we know as modern-day Turkey. It was a crossroads city, a place of, uh, of the mass migration and settlement of people, uh, a, a place where, where for Paul, the gospel would take root and, uh, and would bear tremendous fruit. A few weeks ago, we began a teaching series looking at the letter to the Colossians in the New Testament. I'm going to invite you to open up your Bibles with me if you have them or your device. If you have your device, no problem. Colossians, you just type it in. You got, if you've got your Bible, you have some work. So let me suggest the table of contents. If, you, uh, if you're not sure exactly where it is, because you can flip past it really quickly. In my Bible, it's a page and a half. And it goes by very quickly. Title of this morning's message is Following the Real Jesus. And we're going to use this text from Colossians in order to begin to address that question. This passage of scripture, I have to tell you, Josie prayed it. I have read it. You may have read it. I think this is one of the most beautiful passages about Jesus that you will find anywhere in the, in the Bible, anywhere actually in all of the writings about him throughout history. It, it's more of a kind of poem or a song lyric than it is straight prose. And that makes sense given the message that it's trying to communicate. It's breathless. It, it's almost as if it's written from beginning to end without punctuation. Like you just can't wait to get the next thought out and the next and the next. Poetry has a way of doing that. And songs, they communicate something bigger than just the words that make them up. That's why we're so drawn to them. And Colossians 1, 15 to 20, this is about just about as big as it gets. So I'm going to invite you to join me as we read these words together. Colossians 1, 15 says, the sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And here we get into that long, breathless description of what that means. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Underline those words. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. 
You might want to highlight that that phrase as well. In him, all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, in Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we ask you to teach us to be at work in our hearts and our minds, to allow us to find more than just knowledge, but but wisdom, the kind of understanding that the Spirit at work can give us. Because we want the impact of your word not just to be in the accumulation of facts, but in lives that are worthy of you and please you, bring a smile to your face and are fruitful in our works and and allow us to grow in our knowledge and our relationship in you. We pray to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Apostle Paul had a, a deep love, kind of like a parent's love for these little childlike churches that he planted. And he had a particular burden for this church in Colossae. He wants to make sure that as they get started, that they get started on the right foot. So he starts with the basics. He wants to make sure that they're clear about the main thing. Let's make sure the main thing is always the main thing. And we don't get led astray. And boy, if there were ever counsel for the church, historically and especially nowadays, that's got to be it. Let's make sure we never drift from the main thing. Because to be clear, the church has been pulled in a hundred different directions and distracted in battles that are not the main thing. And so what is the main thing? Above all, he wants to make sure that people are clear about Jesus. He wants to make sure that the things that they're learning and experiencing in their day-to-day lives and in their faith line up with a clear understanding of who Jesus really is. It needs to be grounded in something, a, a theology. Theology, by the way, is just the words we use to talk about God. Lots of people say, I'm not a theologian, I don't, I don't do theology. Sure you do. Anytime you think or speak about God, you're doing theology. He wants to make sure that their theology will sustain them. And why was it important? Because he knew that if you're following the wrong Jesus, that despite all the little good things that may happen along the way, ultimately, ultimately you are building something on a foundation that will collapse. So we start with the question, who is Jesus? That may sound like an elementary question, but realize in the church in Colossae, they can't open up a YouTube browser and type in right now media and get access to 10,000 hours of curriculum on who Jesus is. There are no books that they can go to Indigo and buy or to your library and check out. They don't even have this. I mean, they have the Old Testament portion, but, but the New Testament, all the stories of who Jesus was and what he did, they hadn't been written down yet. And so he wants them to be really clear. Who is Jesus? Was Jesus a good teacher? Clearly he was, but not just that. A wise prophet? Yes, but not just that. The greatest among all the angels they used to sing about Jesus. Was he that? Or was he something something even bigger? It's probably... I think one of the most important questions that we address, not just in the church, but in the world. Because it seems to me that that among the, the most basic things people long for in life, 
meaning, purpose, answers to, to things like suffering and adversity and anxiety, things that plague us. The answers to those things are found in Jesus even when people don't know that that's where the answers are. The things that they love most in the world are found in Jesus even when we don't know that that's the name to be ascribed to these. When you build your life on a foundation of faith, you need to ask, is my faith reliable or is it ridiculous? And where the church has gone off the rails, it's usually because something in their faith has become ridiculous. And that's a polite word for it. Often it becomes scandalous in what their following looks like. So let's look here at what Paul is saying about Jesus. Speaking about Jesus, Paul says, have a look at verse 16. All things have been created through him and for him. Say that with me. All things have been created through him and for him. What does that mean? It means the first time you see Jesus in Scripture is not in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. It's in Genesis chapter 1. Where is Jesus? He's at work separating light from darkness, water from land, creating the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and human beings and flinging stars into space. And and somehow Jesus is part of it from the very beginning. He goes on to say, this is verse 19, that the very essence of who God is, is found in Jesus. Verse 19, God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, in Jesus. The fullness of God made manifest in Jesus in whom all things have been created, through him and for him. All the authority, all the power, all the supremacy of God, there it is in Jesus. You want to know what God is like? His character, his attributes? Look at Jesus. And he's not just, a, he's not just the, the, the theoretical sort of uh, appearance of God. Uh, this is the stuff of of real meaning in daily life. Paul goes on to say that that Jesus is the center of our worship. By that he's saying he's the head of the church. And he's not just the heart of our worship and the head of our church. He's the cornerstone of history. He's the author of salvation. His cross is right there at the center of history. And as we like to sing, there it is towering over the wrecks of time. And at the cross... Jesus does things that only God himself can do. Peace, lasting reconciliation, justice, hope, all these things flowing out of that towering victory. And we could spend hours, we probably should spend hours, I'm not kidding. You could do a whole class, a semester-long journey through these five verses in Colossians. So rich they are with, uh, with thought and meaning and hope. But for the sake of this message, uh, let me just summarize it this way. The Jesus that we know, the Jesus that walked on the face of the earth, was God fully manifest in human form. Everything about God, everything that makes God God, was there in Jesus. He was divine. Whatever you ascribe to God, you can ascribe to Jesus. And from the earliest of days... Followers of Jesus wrestled with what this meant. How do we understand that? How do we apply that? There were then, as there are today, a lot of people who thought that Jesus was indeed very special. I mean, a remarkable man, but in no way divine, just gifted, inspiring. 
and, and others disagreed. And, and this was the, the central discussion in the life of the church for the first 300 years of its existence. They weren't talking about what color to paint the sanctuary or, you know, or, or, or whether they needed to reline the parking lot. No, they were trying to figure out who the real Jesus is. And when it finally settles, the year is in 325 A.D., a little bit of history here, and they gathered together all of their best thinkers, their best leaders, and they spent time together in prayer and worship and discernment. And out of that, in 325 A.D., they called that gathering a council. But they didn't mean like a board meeting. This was just a a worship council. They gathered together for the Council of Nicaea. And out of that, they hammered out a set of language and, and words that, that were used to describe who Jesus was. And I want you to hear it, because for 1,700 years now, these words have been read and memorized and prayed and taught. And I know some people will think, you know, these are kind of sounding, I don't know, Catholic-y sounding words, but... In 325 A.D., there's just the church. I mean, that's just us. So these are our words, and listen to how they describe Jesus. It starts out, we believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is, both seen and unseen. And then listen to this. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, Light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. Where do you suppose they got that expression? And for us and for our salvation, he came from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit, became incarnate in the Virgin Mary, was made man, and for our sake was crucified under Pontius Pilate, suffered death, and was buried And then on the third day, rose again in accordance with scriptures, ascended into heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. Wow. And it goes on. But realize what is is at stake here. They're wrestling to make sure they hold up before each other and before the world the real Jesus, fully divine, And fully human, fully worthy of our worship, not relegated to a second class citizen in the kingdom of God, somebody used temporarily by God and then discarded. No, this is God fully enmeshed in human form. And we're to love him with heart, soul, mind, and strength. You know the great commandment? Somebody asked Jesus, what is it that we need to hold on to? What should we believe? What should we do? He said, you know the commandment, love the Lord your God heart, mind, soul, and strength. But did you realize that in saying those words, he's inviting them to respond to him that way? Of Jesus, heart, mind, soul, and strength. To think of Jesus in this kind of way means means that we know on the one hand, as a human being, he knows pain and suffering and and heartache and betrayal. He goes through puberty and all the awkwardness of, of adolescence. On the other hand, we also know that he is the one who bled and died and holds all the power and authority of God. And it's, I don't know about you, it's hard to hold that all together in our heads, isn't it? In fact, if you can hold it together in your heads, you probably don't have a big enough concept 
of what's really going on. If you can get your head around it, it's too small. We've reduced it to make it manageable. And God is a lot of things, but manageable is never one of them. God is not a tame house pet. Paul understood, and that's why he wrote the letter. He knows that the Colossians, they live at this crossroads city filled with with lots of different religions and philosophies, cults and sects on every corner. I mean, quite literally, on every corner, there would be some reminder of the diversity of belief. And it's really common in that culture, maybe a little bit common in our culture too, to cover your bases by grabbing a little bit of what you find in every corner. Let me just get this piece and add it to this piece. And before you know it, you've got a mantle filled with reminders of all the gods to whom you owe allegiance. And while we probably wouldn't think of them as you know, little talismans that sit on our dining room table anymore, I think we still cobble together a spirituality by grabbing little pizzas from all over the place. And there's a temptation to take Jesus because instead of very God of very God, true light of true light, he's just, yeah, he had some good things to say. We just add Jesus to everything else that's in there. or We just sprinkle him on top of what we already know. And Paul was having nothing to do with any of that. If Jesus were merely human, It means that we are still trapped by everything that holds us in bondage. Our mortality, our fallibility, uh, the, the propensity to make a mess of what God has given to be good, to live without hope. But if Jesus is more than human, indeed fully divine, if that's the real Jesus, then something incredible has happened. It means God himself has drawn near. What could never be knowable, never reachable, never conceivable. All of that comes here. God from God, light from light, true God from true God. That's what's come to us. So here's the key principle. Number one, if we're going to follow Jesus, we've got to follow the right Jesus. And the Jesus that you follow needs to be big enough that he comes bursting through all of the limited human capacity that would rein God in. The way the Bible often says it is with the simple reminder that you shall have no other gods before him. Nothing else should be jockeying for position. If it is, that's not the real Jesus. Again, theology matters. The way we think about these things matters. But we also know that, that, that knowing things to be true doesn't necessarily mean that we follow them in a way that's good. I know, on some level, that bacon is not good for me and kale is. I don't like eating kale and so I don't eat very much of it. I love eating bacon. I still don't eat very much of it. because. <laughs> but you know what I mean. You can be convinced that Jesus is in fact divine, that he deserves all of our worship. We can know that he's worthy of our allegiance. And we can declare like Peter did, John 6, Jesus, I know you're the one with the words of eternal life. You're the one holy God. And yet, when it comes down to it, when, I am, when I'm really struggling, when things get hard and I'm in pain or I simply don't get what I want, my heart wanders 
and I start looking elsewhere, and I reduce Jesus in my mind, and he becomes something other than the real Jesus. Sometimes it's done consciously. Often, we don't even, we don't even know that we're doing. We just kind of drift. Hey, one of my favorite hymns, we sing this one, I think, a lot around here. Come thou fount of every blessing. You know that one? Do you remember a stanza that goes like this? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. I think that's what happens. When it's not the real Jesus, we just start to drift. My colleagues and I are surveying the landscape of the church in the 21st century in Canada, post-COVID, and and wondering what happened. And, And it's not always a conscious choice. I have decided I'm not following Jesus. No, sometimes it's just drift. You can drift from Jesus. You can't drift from the real Jesus. He will not allow it. In fact, it's more than just drifting. Usually what happens when when our view of Jesus is too small, it, it means that there's room to stick in a lot of other things beside Jesus or above him. The Bible, we call those things idols, but I don't want to get hung up on the word. Uh, The idea is that we seek out other things to address what Jesus and Jesus alone can address. We put our own desires ahead of God's desires, our own reputation ahead of God's honor, our own will and pleasure ahead of his purposes. The great reformer, John Calvin, he wrote just famous, famous words. He said that the human mind is a perpetual forge of idols. The human mind is a perpetual forge of idols. We just keep cranking them out. We conjure them up. Things that we can control. Things that give us what we want. And then we live for those things. We give our devotion to those things. And and we all have them, I think, in some way. Part of the path of discipleship, growing in your relationship with the real Jesus is uncovering the idols in your life and renouncing them. It's not always easy to know what they are. But if you came with a spouse or a significant other or you're surrounded by family members, uh, maybe you should just ask them, hey, what do you think my idols are? They probably know better than you do. But let me ask us just a few questions. It might help to unpack that. What are the idols that sort of not just get in the way of your relationship with Jesus, but might indicate that you have latched onto something other than the real Jesus. Here's a good question. What is it that occupies your mind most of the time? Archbishop William Temple once said that your religion is what you do with your solitude. What is it that you do in the quiet moments in your mind? Do you daydream uh, while you're sitting in traffic in the car? What is it you're daydreaming about? What are you thinking about when you sit quietly? What fills your mind? What images do you see? What, what whispers do you hear? I think a lot about distractions. Movies, trivia, books. I read photography blogs and travel blogs. And, and my heart and mind goes to those places. And, and sometimes it doesn't go to the beautiful places that the gospel promises What is it that fills your mind? Here's another question. Where do you spend your money and your time? 
fact, you can, you can address that right away. Just open up your phones, those of you who have it. Look back on your calendar. Where did you spend your days? Log into the bank. Look at the last 100 transactions. Hmm. There's some discerning going on, right? Uh, for me, it's pretty clear. For me, it's Costco. I spend a lot of time, more money than I should at Costco. I think I go there at least once a week. That's, uh, hey, that's about how often most of us go to church. Weird, right? <laughs> and there's a sacrament there, the sacrament of free samples, right? <laughs> Annually, I pay my tithe. I just had to pay it this week. Maybe it's an idol I need to renounce. I don't know. You could help me with that. When I bump into you at Costco, and I bump into lots of you, maybe you just need to say, now, Richard, and I'll know what you mean, and we just stop there. Where do you spend your time and your money? It says a lot about what you value, and it can unearth idols in your life. Here's another question. How do you respond to unanswered prayers and to frustrated hopes? What do you do with unanswered prayer when your hopes are dashed? Because we have those moments in our lives when we go through periods of sadness and disappointment, but we don't live there forever, most of us. We get over it. But if you're not getting over it, what is it that causes such deep despair, such explosive anger, such continual bitterness? And underneath that, you may find an idol. Pay attention to what's going on in your head. It can be a guide to those places that have robbed you from an experience with the real Jesus. Here's another one, kind of applies especially to our world today. How do you consume social media? Hmm. Something interesting about social media, isn't it? It uses the very same framework and the same language that we like to use in the church. It talks about following and followers. Who are you following? How many followers are you looking to, to achieve? What is it that you follow on social media? You could do this today. Go back and look through your history. What YouTube videos did you watch this week? What podcast did you listen to? What Twitter feeds are you subscribed to? What TikTok? Are you still allowed to talk about TikTok, Glenn? Is that allowed? Yeah. You know, Go through your internet browser history, those of you who still surf the internet, us old people. We think we're tech savvy because we're on the web. But, but I glanced through my history this week. What did I find in there? Lots and lots of TED Talks, lots of tech blogs, the Harvard Business Review, uh, teaching on how to be awesome at your job, even, even stuff for church leaders, 10 steps to be better. There's even one in there called the anxious achiever. I guess that's me. I mean, clearly self-improvement is important. It's important to me. Lord knows I need it. There's some stuff in there, again, like I mentioned, about travel and photography and other interests of mine. Uh, kind of escapes. My effort to get to a faraway place, like Jonah. <laughs> we'll get to that later. But it's not that there's anything wrong with self-improvement. It's okay. Idols are rarely ever a bad thing. That's important. Idols are rarely ever a bad thing. Often the things we idolize are good things that were never meant to be ultimate things. And the problem with an idol is not so much what it is, it's the place that it assumes in your life. And if it assumes the place that only the real Jesus can occupy, chances are that's not the real Jesus anymore. Because he will not share authority or power in your life. 
An idol represents for me a need that I am not willing to surrender yet to Jesus, an area of my life where I am resisting. And in doing that, Jesus becomes not true God of true God, light of light eternal. He becomes one God of many gods, but not my only God. Tim Keller said, there is nothing more dangerous than religious confidence in a fake God of our own making. And the problem is not just that it, it dishonors God. The problem is that it wrecks our lives. Because these things ultimately cannot provide what we need. Remember we said that people long for what Jesus brings, even when they don't know that Jesus brings it? When we place that longing in other places, we get stuck and we get disappointed. So what do you do? Idols cannot simply be removed. Idols have to be replaced. Nature abhors a vacuum. If you take it out, something else is going to rush in and occupy that space. So idols can't be removed. They need to be replaced. And Paul knows that the antidote, the antidote to a God that is just designed and suited to my, my own limited understanding, my own capacity, a false Jesus... The antidote to that is a God that is bigger than I can imagine. So he wants to paint this picture in Colossians 1 of God as big as we can possibly get our heads around. Keller says again that Jesus must become more beautiful in your imagination, more attractive to your heart than anything that you idolize. This, he says, is what will replace your counterfeit gods. If you uproot the idol and you don't plant the love of Christ in its place, Another idol just grows back. Like gardening, right? I'm a terrible gardener. Any terrible gardener? No, you don't have to admit that. Any good gardeners here? Okay. Let's ask it. Any terrible gardeners? Do any of you not know what gardening is? Okay. Yeah. Hey, this is, this is about as much as I know about gardening. I'm a great disappointment to my parents who are fabulous gardeners. I know a little bit about lawns. I'm not claiming I have a great lawn, but I know a little bit about lawns. And I know that the secret to a good lawn, a lawn that is free of weeds, is grass that is thick and healthy. So I could spend all my time just plucking weeds, or I could spend my time making sure that the lawn is aerated and fertilized and seeded so that what grows up is something lush and rich. And there's just no room for the weeds to to, to crowd their way in between. How do we keep our lawns thick? How, how do we keep our lives thick? How do we plant the love of Christ in our hearts? Well, one of the things that we do is what we're doing right now. We immerse ourselves in the language that draws us into the presence of God. We, we study the scripture, which is filled with that language. It's part of the discipline for this series. I, I hope that you're reading Colossians, huge swaths of it. Let's be clear, it's not that big a swath on its own. So maybe you're reading in and around it. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, you're just digesting all of it. Keep the truth of the gospel in front of yourself. Be immersed in it. Actually, I like the word marinate. Marinate yourself in the word of God. Allow it to soak in. Read it and and listen to it and, and visualize it. Sing it and and love it. 
And like any other relationship in your life, invest time in it. I think the mistake we make is assuming that this stuff ought to be automatic. There is nothing automatic about it. You have to invest time here. Set aside time to be in God's presence. It could be prayer or solitude or contemplation. It could be worship or reflection or singing or service or or learning. There's so many ways to do it, but the key is being intentional and devoting time to it. If this is a divine marriage, you and God, it will succeed the only way that any marriage ever succeeds, the conscious investment of time and emotion and effort. So are you following the real Jesus? Really following? Hey, I've got one more phone exercise for you. If you have a phone, do this. Open it up. Open up your, uh, your internet browser. If you don't have a phone, you're going to peer over the shoulder if somebody next to you does. I want you to type in the search field, Buddy Christ. B-U-D-D-Y, Christ. And as you're doing that, I want to tell you that uh, this, this expression and, and this visual that's going to pop up comes from an old movie called Dogma. It's a terrible movie. I don't recommend it. Don't watch it. Those of you who are watching online, this is not a recommendation. But, but it is the source of one of the most famous memes that is out there on the internet right now. It's a meme about Jesus. And there he is, the buddy Christ. You can't see mine, but maybe you can see yours. It's the one who's doing this. Okay? And the, and the story in the movie is this. The Catholic Church gets together and they decide that the traditional depiction of Jesus, the crucifix, Jesus hanging on a cross, way too depressing, too dark, too troubling, too troubling for the modern world. And so they come up with a symbol that is hip and one that speaks to the times. The buddy Christ. And there he is. And while it's certainly we can say, we should say, that Jesus is a friend. He is also the Lord of the universe, the maker of the heavens and the earth. In him, all that lives and moves has its being. In him, all things consist and hold together. And Jesus on the cross is not an embarrassment. It is a triumph. It is the picture of love, and it is the picture of salvation. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. I want to close just by reading some words from Psalm 146. And I invite you to do something with this. Um, the Psalms are as you know, just a a rich collection of worship material in the Old Testament, worship towards God. But as you see the word Lord and read the word God in Psalm 146, I'm going to invite you to picture Jesus, the real Jesus. And listen as we read and pray these words. Praise the Lord Jesus, my soul. I will praise him all my life. I will sing praises to God as long as I live. Don't put your trust in princes, in human beings, in idols that cannot save. Because when their spirit departs, they just return to the ground. And on on that very day, all their plans come to nothing. But blessed are those whose help is in Jesus the Lord, the God of Jacob. Blessed are those whose hope is in the Lord their God. He is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. 
And He remains faithful forever. You join me as we pray. Lord Jesus, Jesus, forgive us when we go chasing after other things. Vain hopes and selfish desires. We know that not only is it dishonoring to you, but ultimately it's destructive for us. We want you, the real you. We know, Lord, that you are worth following, worth our allegiance, worth our devotion. So God, would you, would you draw our attention to you, to the real Jesus? Help us to stay faithful in prayer and worship in the activities of our lives. And thanks for loving us despite our deficiencies. Thanks for being our hope even when we thought things were hopeless. We love you, Lord, with heart, soul, mind, and strength. We love you, Jesus. Amen.